This is SciBite, episode 57, for August 7th, 2012. everyone, and welcome to SciBy, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast. Fresh every Wednesday morning over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us, like every single week, is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, happy science to you. Happy science. Hmm, what are we talking about this week, Heather? Today, we're going to take a look at the Curiosity rover. It's landing on Mars, uh, Sunday, August the 5th. Even we have an interview with Mars Society President Robert Zubrin. And as always, we're going to take a peek back into history and up in the sky. I am really looking forward to this week's episode. Of course, I was glued to the Curiosity rover landing. So why don't we do the news? All right, Heather, I have a guess. But what is our first news story? Yes, I don't know if there was any other news this last week. I'm not really sure. (laughs) I, I don't know. I was kind uh, of in a blur. <laughs> yeah, everything was in a blur. The world was Curiosity Rover. Yeah. This is a huge rover. It launched uh, eight months ago. It's got 10 different instruments. It's huge in the amount of the instrumentation on it mm. that it can go and it can search for various bits of uh, methane for biogenic life, searching for these kind of things. Um, in fact, I was able to talk to uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin uh, about this a little bit uh, last week before the landing. He has uh, got um, advanced degrees in aeronautics and astronautics, a doctorate in nuclear engineering, president of the Mars Society, uh, and a company, uh, aerospace company, Pioneer Astronautics, and author of a number of books, including The Case for Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, uh, we have a link of The Case for Mars, and uh, he is, uh, he's on the show we play him right now. We've heard a lot about this so-called uh, seven minutes of terror, uh, referring to the landing style of this rover using a parachute, jetpack, sky crane system instead of the bounce style of the landings of previous rovers. What do you think of this landing style? Well, uh, when you first look at the sky crane system, which is basically a, uh, a parachute that uses rockets instead of aerodynamics uh, to slow the spacecraft down and, in fact, bring it to a halt, and then lower it to ground with a, a, a rope, or a cable, rather, um, it, it appears very improbable. But then uh, when you look at it in more detail, there does not appear to be any physical reason why it can't work, um, although a number of failure modes uh, are uh, available. Um, it's a, it, I must say I wouldn't have chosen it myself. I, I would have chosen setting the thing down with rockets, uh, attached to the base of a lander, just as we did on Viking or on the Phoenix lander. Uh, this does have the advantage that the rover does not have to clear itself off of anything. Um, um, but it's a new landing system. It's a $2 billion mission. All of NASA's eggs are in one basket. Uh, but if it does indeed work, um, 
it's a very attractive landing system and one that we can use for many things, including Mars sample return, because this system is going to land 900 kilograms on the Martian surface. You mentioned the weight. I believe one reason that it has the capability of handling that weight and the scientific instruments that go along with that weight is because of the power system, a nuclear RTG on this mission instead of the solar panels used in previous rover missions. Right. Uh, it has nuclear RTGs that have half-lives of 88 years, uh, and so uh, this thing could literally operate for decades uh, if it is successfully landed on Mars. Uh, it also uh, is extremely heavily instrumented. It has about an order of magnitude more instruments than either Spirit or Opportunity. Um, and uh, all kinds of imaging gear, chemical testing gear, the ability to uh, uh, shoot a laser at rocks at some distance and vaporize material and do spectroscopy on them to evaluate the chemical composition of rocks that are far away from it. It has a microscope. It has the ability to sniff for methane. It has the ability to distinguish between the isotopic composition of the methane to be able to see if the methane is biogenic or created through non-biological processes. So one spectacular discovery that Curiosity could make in principle, if it's there to be made, is to discover a uh, event that is emitting biogenic methane and thus locating underground life on Mars. Where does cu the Curiosity mission stand uh, overall in the overall Mars rover program and even uh, getting uh, man to Mars? Well, this mission uh, is in a sense a deviation from um, some wisdom that NASA acquired after the failure of the Mars Observer mission. Mars Observer was a $1 billion orbiter. It took a decade to build, and then it failed, producing no data. Uh, after that uh, happened, NASA resolved, instead of um, doing grand spacecraft, that it would do multitudes of smaller spacecraft and launch them quite frequently. And so we had a rather successful program on the whole with Pathfinder and uh, Mars Global Surveyor being launched in 96, both successful both inexpensive spacecraft, 150 million each. Uh, then we had two uh, other craft in 98, both cheapos, but they both failed. But it didn't matter that much because we were locked and loaded with another little guy ready to go, Mars Odyssey, in 2001, and that was launched and it was successful. And then two somewhat larger craft, Spirit and Opportunity, the rovers, launched in 2003, both worked. Then uh, a... Uh, somewhat more powerful orbiter, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, launched in 2005. It worked. A small polar lander in 2007, Phoenix. It worked. But in 2004, uh, then-Administrator O'Keefe decided that what he would do is, rather than follow up Spirit and Opportunity with multitudes of additional rovers of their class, which I think would have been advisable uh, and very productive, we could have sent lots of these little things all over the planet with different places, different instruments, different kinds of science, uh, and, you know, very widely diffused risk. They um, decided to uh, create a much more powerful spacecraft. The Curiosity is, uh, you know, basically an order of magnitude, more instrumentation, an order of magnitude, more data rate, an order of magnitude, more power, literally, um, and an uh, order of magnitude, more money. Uh, it's a $2 billion craft. Uh, so here it is, 
And uh, if the mission succeeds, it will be the best Mars exploration mission ever. But if it fails, not only will it be out $2 billion, it will be an enormously discrediting blow to NASA coming at the worst possible time when their uh, future missions have been scrambled by the Obama administration. They've canceled the 2016-2018 mission for the people who are trying to get those missions restored or get them replaced with alternative missions for NASA to blow it on a mission of this importance uh, will look really bad and will be devastating. And uh, furthermore, you know, you know how it always is with these things. Uh, before the failure, no one knows what the, the, about the, what the failure mode is. After the failure, it's obvious that it would fail. How could you not have taken that into account? How could you have been so dumb? Uh, and, you know, and of course, there'll be some memo somewhere from some engineer to some manager who brought up the possibility of this failure mode and they will demand to know why this was not dealt with and so forth and so on and it will be used as an excuse to kill the program so basically uh, all of our hopes and fears are riding on this mission what do you feel are the kinds of things that we might see from a successful mission well of course it can't discover things that aren't there uh, but first of all if it simply lands successfully and begins operations, I would call that a successful mission. Now, uh, the discoveries that it makes, who knows? Uh, you know, it could be that Mars, uh, or the place where it lands anyway, does not have uh, things of, of compelling interest in, in that location, and, and it might not discover that much that we haven't already encountered from Spirit and Opportunity. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if it should sniff out a methane vent, and identify biogenic isotopic signatures in the methane, that will be enormous. That will say, look, there's life on Mars. It's underground. It's right here. Send astronauts here and set up a drilling rig, and you can find extraterrestrial life. And a, uh, a really big thank you to uh, Dr. Uh, Robert uh, Zubrin for coming on the show and really helping me kind of, Heather, I think after that I have yeah. a much better appreciation of what the stakes were. Yes, that you can kind of hear that yeah. worry in his voice. You were talking yeah. about that earlier. And yeah. that is why this is, there was literally the whole program, as you said, depended on how this went. Yeah, I, you know, so that was uh, recorded on Wednesday. And yes. um, it, it was, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was obviously concerned. And I, I was too, although I obviously didn't have all the context that he did. Now, mm -hmm. uh, now looking at it, it worked. Yes. And he yes, even said in his did. own words, if it was successful, it could be one of the greatest, uh, you know, um, periods of discovery on Mars. And are we looking at that now, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. This, I mean, the whole system is going for a couple of objectives. One, determining the mineralogical composition of the surface, um, you know, the sort of surface geological materials. It's going to uh, try to detect the chemical building locks of life. I mean, interpret those, look at the rocks and the soil, figure out what kind of processes made those. Sort of looking at the long time scale, uh, you know, did water used to be here? Right, right. You know, what used to be here? How did it get here? Um, where was water? Where's the carbon dioxide? Where um, even like surface radiation, from you know galactic radiation or cosmic radiation all these type of things how they come down to the surface and how they all come together to say what is the likelihood of life 
before and now and way long ago. Mm-hmm. So kind of looking at all of this together. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I also I also uh, hadn't really given much thought to his other his other his other approach that he mentioned that they could have taken where they would have deployed lots of little individual rovers. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, in that case you would not I mean this is a really powerful instrument that but it is going to be in one location. Mm-hmm. So there is certainly the possibility that you could have um said, All right, this area you want to look at, you know, we want to do this kind of stuff. So you send a rover there with just the capabilities of scooping up dirt and looking at it because it's in a really sandy area. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to go over here in a really rocky plane and hope that you, you know, land in the right kind of way so that you can drill into rocks. Right, right. And they've obviously equipped it with, uh, you know, uh, a whole suite of cameras, a whole suite of equipment so that. It, yes. And they they must have targeted. I mean, that crater they targeted must have been like, all right, this is the place we need to go. Like if we could bet on one spot to land this thing, this is it. Right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There is a uh, a mountain nearby that they were aiming for. And that was the the whole point. They want there was this crater huh. and this mountain, and they were trying to go for this this area because they felt like it had the highest possibility mm. of what. I mean, they've been planning this for years, arguing about where exactly they were going to, <laughs> you know, to land it, where it was going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the different know, merits um, of the different locations. Of oh, of things. course. Yeah. <laughs> and like the landing target, uh, NASA Administrator Charles uh, Bolden said it was like launching out of Kennedy Space Center, sending something to the Rose Bowl, and having it land on the 50-yard line on a Frisbee. Wow. So it was just had to be so incredibly precise and so many calculations going in, and even as it traversed towards Mars, making um, tiny corrections here and there to make sure it was going to be in this exact spot. And they were um, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, is one of the major things that they, you know, they look and they're trying to find um, the landing preps. They go through and they take images of this whole area. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they even did a weather type forecast. Like 34 hours before it landed, they took you know a whole bunch of you know a wide scale surface of the Mars and said, "All right, here's a dust storm. Here wow. is some you know as it's rolling in. So we just we, we kind of know what's happening." And there was you know there was a dust storm heading to the towards the area that they were going to land at, but it wasn't a major one, so they weren't quite as concerned. It can, you're, anything like this, you're going to build so it can handle dust and sure. winds and things of that nature. Now, the stronger it is, the more likely that maybe it'll get less accuracy, but, so, but they kind of gave themselves an idea of what they were about to dive into. Hmm. That's, you know, the, the way they utilized that, that, uh, orbiter not just for the reconnaissance information but uh also for that awesome shot they got of it uh yes. of it in the parachuting down they were actually able to snap a picture of it on its way down i'm i'm sure uh i'm sure you must have a picture of that yeah there it is boom right yes. there so people watching the enhanced version i'll pull it up right here in the feed uh so amazing and i didn't know they were going to do this i didn't hear anything about this did you did you know they were going to attempt to do this Yes. Okay. Uh, they, I, I was wondering they if they were keeping it hush, uh, hush. Okay. No, the Phoenix rover that landed on the cap, uh, the polar cap of Mars uh, a year or two ago, they took a picture of that on the way down. So they've been planning this okay. since March. Okay. Oh, they okay. have been, all right, you know, saying here's exactly where it is. We have to have the time. They've adjusted the orbit of this. They keep, you know, they, 
Yeah. Yeah, they adjust his very orbit so that they have it right on cue, ready to go. They've had they had the they had to get it so precise that a second before or a second after it wouldn't have been there. Yeah, think about that, right? I mean it we're talking they had to they had to get the orbit of this thing just right to get the timing. Get, so many things they coordinated so well. I mean, I yes. have such mad respect. And while we're talking about the actual landing process, um yes. th- the coordination online with Ustream uh, eleven yeah. point five. At the time I watched, I saw that a total of eleven point five million people had tuned into their UStream stream. Uh, yeah. They were tweeting uh, um, just right, just brilliantly from multiple different Twitter accounts. Um, yes. And then on top of that, they had the three D simulator. Did you play yes. with that? That was so yeah. cool. As soon as I got the Linux Action Show published on Sunday, I fired that thing up and I just watched it approach. And it was like five hours. Five hours that, early. That's what I had. I was just like, I watched Mars be like, had, you know, my my window so that like on the very bottom, <laughs> the time was exposed. Yeah. And on like the other edge, I had it so that Mars was there. Yeah. So I kind of watched it grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And I started getting more and more excited and, you know, and thinking it, that I could and, power and that the thing, world. That thing was perfectly on time with what I was seeing happen on the live stream. Yeah. I and mean, it was just like unbelievable. It was. Well, it was coming from the type of data that NASA was getting. You could see in the, if you look at some of the shots in the control room, they have a, a 3D imager on their wall. Now it's not at, quote unquote as pretty. It's got lots of numbers all over it, but that's the kind of thing that they're, they're pulling it out so that everybody oh, can just Oh, are you up. kidding me? We're getting the same data feed they get? Uh, it's based off that data. It's sort of stripped down a little bit. Um, you know, so we're getting not as much of the the details as they are. Yeah, they that's get like the idea they get a, of, you're talking about that crazy heads up display they have. The one, yes. yeah, that that is really that was really neat. I saw that in the stream a few times, uh, and you have a video that has it in there too. Um, yeah, no, ours was much more consumer friendly, but very neat because you could move it around in 3D space and you could zoom in and zoom out. So watching it as it burned through the atmosphere was extremely compelling. Yes, and so you can see the, the parachute pop out and it go away. So it was very. You know, very visual, very, as you say, consumer friendly to kind of get people a real feel for what's going on. Because I, I just can't think of another aspect of our government that uh, is just that is just this in tune with uh, with the general population like this. I mean, this this is really progressive. Uh, here's the here's the moment. That's the landing. Yes, it's landed. Oh my gosh! Those are some happy scientists. Yeah, I got I got caught in the the wave of happy. Oh, I did too. I was I was I was elated, and you know, like I had this overall like science, yes, and a lot of people online were, and also it sounds kind of cheesy, but I felt like very patriotic for the first time in a long time. Like I was really proud of something that our nation had accomplished. Yeah, and. That was a, a big thing. Actually, I heard um, it was playing it on Times Square on the big uh, Teletron or whatever it's called. Yeah. And there might not have been a, a big crowd around, but as it landed, everyone started chanting, science, science. <laughs> I was like, that is awesome. Think about I, like, it's just like, I don't know. It's just, it really, the, the, the space accomplishments are fundamentally, they feel like they're what humanity is meant to do. Like we are meant to go out and discover and learn and go out. That's kind of like what we do. And we feel I feel like it's the highest form of what our government can accomplish. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're doing it. And it's yes. it's good. It's, it's so, it feels so gratifying as a citizen. Yes. And 
they have a lot of this. Well, I mean, there are so many images because they, you know, they bring forward a lot of scientific, um, you know, information. But you also have to realize the, even going back to Hubble, there's a lot of scientific data in those. However, the really pretty, you know, colorful <clears throat> pictures, there is some science to that. You know, it's like this color is, you know, representing hydrogen. But they also realize that the public is very visual. You know, you want to see something. So they're able to get these type of things out. There was, I... Oh, man, NASA nailed it with... They They had the 7 Minutes of Terror YouTube video that became a viral everywhere. hit. That everywhere. Everywhere was playing that. That was pure genius on NASA's part because uh, it was a direct form of marketing. Now, they must have spent some serious money on that video because it was very, very, very well done. But it really yes. got the job done. Yeah, and now they're... Um, They've got a one image of the, as it coming down, they actually had a, a camera on it so that starting at about, um, you know, I have 1,500 different resolutions pictures as they came down. So they have it there and they're able to take pictures as it came down on the landing. Right. The Mars descent imager. So they already have one uh, low res uh, sort of animation film. So it's just a whole bunch of pictures that they, you know, can go through at a specific rate and you can see as it's coming. Together. Yeah, stitch them together. So it's, as it's coming down and the last couple, you can see the dust flying up from the jetpack right above it. Oh, cool. All right. That's neat. So I, I, they've already come out with the, the low res version of it. And of and, course, and they, that comes out later just because of what the, uh, um, the just the upload time. Yeah. So well, like the first thing, even though it's taken all those photos, the first thing it sent home was the landing photo. Yeah. Well, there's a, a couple of things there. The there was going to be a limited window. You know, there was the the mountain that was going to be in the way. So it was about to cut off the communication. Mm. So it needed to send back stuff. So it took they call it uh, you know, the little thumbnails came back. So they took really low res versions of a couple of pictures. You know, as you know, the front and the back, the hazard cameras, and they shot that back. So it's a small, a small image packet that they can send up really quick. Hmm. And so then they'll have the higher res images that they kind of store on board. Right. And then send them on. And it's fairly, uh, it's fairly modest computer system. It's like a, a pretty low end, uh, like 200 something megahertz G3 style processor, power PC, yeah. you know, 256 megs of RAM or something like that. Pretty, you know, but all that kind of stuff is always very conservative. Yeah. I mean, and then come, you know, it was a ministry. There was so much that had to come together. 500,000 lines of code. Oh, here it is. 76. Is it? I think I found, I think I found the, uh, <clears throat> the descent you were talking about. I just had to read the lingo. This is, so this is, uh, this is, they are actually able to watch it land on the surface. This is so yes. neat. So they were able to stitch together. You know, they had about where it was supposed to go. They had this image. They had the image that the reconnaissance orbiter took, you know, as, you know, in flight. And they were able to pinpoint its landing to within just a couple feet. Wow. And they were like, this is where we landed. <clears throat> so, well done. I mean, because of, you know, this film, they're able to track out, all right, here's this crater, here's that crater, and as we're going in, pinpoint it to this specific spot. <laughs> this is such a triumph. It's so awesome. And 
Now, I think, the, what do you think of the headlines? Is it is it hyperbole? Have people been going overboard when it said uh, the rover's there to, to search for life? Um, I, is that is that sort of overselling it, do you think? Well, of course, it's going to be shiny and, and big to say that kind of a thing. They, the more conservative view that NASA's taken is saying, we're just looking for habitability. We're going out and we're saying, this swamp has all the stuff that would make this kind of duck happy. All right. Or this was okay. definitely a riverbed or something like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This was, you know, this part of the desert used to be a, a river. Or you say, you know, part of the Antarctic, you know, used to be yeah, okay. full of tropical sure. life. <clears throat> okay. Thumbs up. And that's where they stop. Now, uh, Dr. Zubin kind of mentioned there might be some where they can say, oh, wow, we actually see something right now that something is happening that we can see this offshoot of methane that would indicate current um, microbial something in the in the soil. But its main idea is to just check its habitability now and its habitability in the past. Right, okay. Uh, so that would be really a lucky shot if it got a little methane offshoot. Well, yeah. And it has super, super sensitive sensors for that kind of thing. Yes, there has various um, sensors and instruments going about exactly what this thing is going to look for. It's got its ability to look at um, lens images so they can go out and pick pick things up and put it into, you know, a a high speed, uh, a very incredibly good camera so it can take color pictures um, as tiny as right. 12 and a half microns, yeah. you know, the, the width of a human hair. So it's, and it's got the ability to go through an uh, X-ray diffraction to sort of beam through a sample to say, all right, here's the exact mineral uh, crystalline structures of this little bit of dirt. Um, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, the laser, because it has a laser, it can shoot uh, rocks up to uh, right. 30 feet away. <laughs> and it can, then it has, then it can look at the, you know, the dust that comes out and take a spectrograph of that and say, all right, this is what's there. Huh. Um, he also in the interview mentioned that yes. it has uh, a nuclear reactor, right, as its power. And- Not quite, but yes, it is nuclear powered. Okay. It's. It's okay. kind of not like a reactor then, because that would be ridiculous. no, not a reactor, right? But uh, <clears throat> okay, but radioisotope he... thermoelectric generator. Oh, okay, all right. So it's okay. So all right, because that the... obviously makes sense. What it is well, is is it taking... like it boils, right? It's a heat thing, right? Yeah, it's as the uh, decay, yeah, as the radioactive uh, material decays, it is giving off heat, right? And then you know there is a heat difference that you can take in. Uh, a junction, and you can say from the cold atmosphere of Mars to this heated radio um, uh, off off heat of this radio uh, decay, then you can get electricity from that. He said he said potentially eighty years. Yeah, that is it has the half life of that. So the half life of the you know it'll stay radioactive for that long. Now, fairly obvious to me is that the equipment won't last that long. Right. There Especially are, with the sand storms and the, yeah, you know, the seasons the, and over the years, it's just going to start to wear down. Yeah. Now it does, uh, the way it's made up because of the uh, RTG, the radioisotop, uh, radioisotopic uh, 
power is makes it more able to handle the winter. You know, the rovers that we have now, um, uh, you know, Spirit and Opportunity, one of them, well, one of them past tense, but they had the solar panels and that had a limited power source. So they had to shut down for the winter because the sun was too low in order to keep enough power mm -hmm. to keep going. Mm -hmm. They had to keep, it was barely enough power to keep everything warm enough not to freeze up. Mm -hmm. Now, this, uh, the RTG as they call it, it definitely has enough heat. It has enough heat to keep everything pipey, you know, piping warm all winter. And it, just it doesn't it actually stuck. literally have piping and it, it has like a fluid that it can move around to keep different areas of it warmer from the reactor thing or whatever. Uh, didn't I, didn't they, in one of the side bites, didn't you say that? I uh, believe maybe so. I don't want to misquote myself, but yeah, there are. Because <laughs> um, myself <laughs> hates that when myself does that. Well, so, you know. <laughs> you know, break the science now or before. I right. don't want to break the science. Right. But yeah, you want... The idea have, we'll have to consult with past selves. Okay, I'll, I'll talk to uh, Pat's tether yeah. later. I do remember something about there was some sort of innovative way it kept itself warm. Yeah, the kind of thing where it would pipe through everything to make sure that this instrument stays warm, it doesn't freeze up, and mm -hmm. you know, they keep at various temperatures that they want to be at. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's that. So you have all this power and then all that power makes all, you know, not only to heat everything, but to create that energy so that you can have uh, lasers and x-ray diffraction and all these different things. You can have spectrometers to be able to analyze the, the mineral, mineralogy and uh, the methane and all these type of things to, to really have power those instruments. You have all this extra power. Mm-hmm. They're, um, I mean, looking at, you know, minor instruments like looking at the weather to, you know, being able to power these more complicated things. So it, the fact that it does have this RTG gives it the extra power to have the suite of things going on, which is why everyone is so excited. A lot of people are very excited because it can look at so many different things and analyze the analytical power of this is... And you know, the runtime means a lot of different people are going to try going to be able to look at a lot of different things I would think. Yeah, and they'll they'll be able to take it further. Yeah. You know, and essentially as far as the dust storms don't get into the gears and you actually get, you know, mechanical wear and tear. Mm -hmm. Then this thing could just keep trucking. I mean, you know, after a while the wheels could fall off. I mean, who knows, right? You'll, but you'll get one wheel that'll little jam. I mean, that's what had problems with Spirit and Opportunity with that, where a wheel jams up. So now the other wheels are kind of just dragging him along. Mm. In fact, speaking of the wheels, don't they have something kind of interesting about them? I think we've mentioned it once before, but I think it's, it yeah. bears repeating. Yes. Uh, part of the problem that we ran into Spirit and Opportunity, they both got stuck in those sand drifts. And there is a long delay between when you send the data and when it comes back. So, you know, you... You look at all the, you know, the, the rocks and everything around you, and then you, you plan out. You're like, okay, we're going to go forward and turn 30 degrees and drive forward another foot, and that's going to be what we do today. Mm -hmm. The problem is you get the pictures back at the end of the day, and you're buried rim deep in sand because it kept trying to go. So then what they, they realized is they had to have a way to for the onboard computer to say, all right, we need to track essentially an odometer in the dirt that says, all right, these gaps should be these far. And if it's not, if they're getting closer and closer, it means we're, we're having some wheel spin, stop, ignore what Earth says. 
right. until Earth decides that something different needs to happen. Interesting. That is very smart. Okay. And so what they did is they made specific um, markers in the wheels that actually are Morse code for JPL. Right. So they're leaving Morse code of JPL as they, you know, traverse the Martian landscape. Now, of course, you know, it'll the winds will pick up and it'll get blown away. But, mm, but in the, the meantime, you're leaving Morse code. Well, and the thing can they, snap a picture like, of it I too. So they can look at, uh, they could, those are, those are, those are treads that they, I'm sure that it can look at to just kind of mark progress too. Well, yeah, that's, that's what I was uh, indicating is that they've got that, what they call hazard cams, you know, in the front and in the back. That's some of the uh, first images that came down were from those because they're, Fairly low res, and essentially it's just kind of check. Right there on the wheel? Is that, is that what I'm looking at there? Is that What you're looking at, I believe, is the the markers on the wheel itself, which is the Morse code for JPL. Oh, looks like there's now, a... the cameras are kind of underneath the okay. edge okay. of the, the bed of the craft. Gotcha. So they can look at, you know, the rear will look at the wheels, see how they look and where they are, and be able to look at the, the JPL. Markers, so they can look and see. You know, the computer can look, the scientists can look to see what's nearby, what's around the wheels. Make sure that the odometer is essentially c- kicking off at the right pace. That mm-hmm. you're not mm-hmm. getting buried deep into something. You're not. Are you sliding? Are you burying yourself? Or whatever is going on. Uh, one thing that we've mentioned a couple times and came up in the interview was the power. I mentioned, uh, you know, and that, that RTG allows you to get all of this going. Yeah, yeah. So there's just a lot going on here. The fact that, you know, we mentioned the uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, yeah. the MRO, that snapped a picture of it coming down. Yeah. It actually came into the whole communication process. We were able to get the real-time data or, you know, quasi real time data because of that satellite. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, the all of these are able to kind of the rovers and the orbiters communicate with each other often. And this one is able to communicate to the orbiter which has a much larger larger dish. So it was able to beam everything back really quick and we were able to see it in just the thirteen, almost fourteen minutes. Otherwise, you know, it was going over the you know, the horizon, it'll be on the the backside of Mars, essentially, mm-hmm. until it comes back so we can talk to it uh, again once it uh, gets through half a day. Mm-hmm. Now, that, was, that was a brilliant coordination, not just for the cool picture that we got, yeah. uh, but just f- the way it assisted in communication and all of that. It was so well executed by NASA. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just really blown away. quite a bit of, of planning. There are a couple of different orbiters around Mars, and they tweaked the orbit of all of them so that they could all kind of be aiming towards where it was going to land. They wanted pictures. Now, everything, um, you know, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was able to send something back immediately. Now, there are high-res images, and the other orbiters are all, um, you take pictures and you hold them, and then you you send them on. So they've got them in the the coming weeks, uh, all the various images from from the orbiters, from the rover, as time goes on, we'll be able to get the higher res images. I believe some of them are uh, going to be essentially HD imagery. Hmm. It'd be interesting. 
uh, to see uh, the feed we're going to get. I would imagine we'll probably have uh, a few a few updates over the next uh, many side bites. Won't we? We're probably just going to get a constant stream of cool information. Yeah, it's going to be a flurry of stuff probably in the next month or so because it's going to take a couple weeks for everything doesn't start right away. They probably won't start driving for a month or two. They're, they're going to settle down. They're going to make sure everything is running, make sure all the computers are happy and communication is set. You really um, think it could be a month or two before they drive? I know it's going to be in this next week before you know the, the camera on the mast. It's going to be sometime this week that it's raised. I mean, they essentially they're going to go through and check every piece of equipment, make sure it by itself is happy and go through and check other things. There is it is it about scientific validation so that way if the instrumentation detects something they know it's valid is that what is that what's at stake here the some of that somebody just want to make sure everything checks out if there is an issue if something is pulling more power when it you know do you have a gear on the arm that for some reason binds up and it takes a little bit extra power and a, you know it has to maneuver just differently to get to a rock surface or does you know, the mass camera, mass camera hookup here or just making sure everything works and how everything works. Right. Because this, I guess, it's not just the fact that it just went through a space landing, uh, yeah. which is it can be a little, you know, a little bumpy. But also yeah. the fact that uh, this is actually the first time it's really been in operation, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's you know, everything was checked out here on Earth. Yeah. But in the meantime, it you know, spent eight months getting to Mars, I believe once or twice talking about um, coronal mass ejections, solar flares. It got hit at least twice with fairly decent uh, size, you know, coronal mass ejections. So it had all these cosmic rays, you know, hydrogenic particles hitting the craft. So you want to make sure that that happened, the, from the traveling in space, from the landing to the, you know, the cold in space, to the heat in the atmosphere, to the cool on the ground, how everything came together to make sure that it all works. It has a, a sort of twin here on Earth so that they can... Right, a mechanical twin. And, yeah. so they can demo stuff. So if something acts uh, differently than they think it should, then they can come back to Earth and like, all right, you hold that, hold that thought, Mars, this thing, and then come back to Earth. It really is a laboratory. Uh, a it, it really, it like it... It fills chambers with samples. It loads those samples into slides and moves those slides into place and then blasts it with a laser and has collection yeah. trays. And I mean, this yeah, is. Yeah, those are, you know, it's, it's x rays that they're shooting through that and it's the diffraction. Mm. They're able to tell the exact crystal composition and how they are layered. And all of this data goes into the details. And like you said, it has, it has this huge suite of what it can do. And so it, the, the possibilities of where this can go, we're going to travel up this, um, this mountain so it has layers. So you can look at the various layers. You can essentially, uh, like layers here on Earth, kind of mm. go back in time, mm -hmm. similar mm -hmm. there. So you can kind of track, um, you know, what the surface of Mars was in the past. Right. Get a, see what the, what the soil or the rock sample, what it's made up of back then. Yes. So, you, you know, you're, you're checking all this stuff and you're, the analysis, and it's all coming together. But before you can get there, you're going to check out everything. And then 
once the communication is set, once you know exactly how the instruments are acting, how they coordinate together, um, that you can laser rocks and you're, you're, you're protected against little uh, Marvin the Martian in case he comes. <laughs> then what you can you, start. What do you suppose? Could it find something? What do you think? Well, it certainly could. Um, but what do you, th- do you think? You think? Uh, I, I know you hope. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly certain that at some point there was a really good chance that microbes were hanging out there. Yeah. We're, we're kind of too late to the party, aren't we? Probably a pretty well, good chance the party's over on Mars. It, it's definitely a possibility. Um, uh, if you believe uh, Dr. Zubrin, uh, who we had on earlier, he definitely believes that there are spots that under the soil, it, w- it could be um, warm enough and moist enough that, you know, the, the UV radiation hitting the top of the soil wouldn't kill it off, you know, buried underneath. So there are, uh, you know, sections of the scientific community like him that believe, yes, we could actually see something now. There are people who say, well, we actually need like a drill and a little burrowing mm-hmm. something in order to see what would be down there. But for now, what this is looking for is exactly that. Just saying, what is what is the habitat now? What was the habitat? Does any of that match up with the ability to have um, some sort of microbial life? It uh, it'll also leave a sort of a beacon of the human race if something ever happens to us on this planet. <laughs> if another if another species comes along and finds that little rover, it'll really kind of indicate where we were at. Although they'll get a they'll get a kind of a misunderstanding of our computer capabilities, but they'll hopefully be impressed by our robotics and our mobile yes. laboratory capabilities. Yeah, they'll be like, hey, look at that! <laughs> they had a little go kart. Hopefully, they'll give the uh, the old G three processor, the Power PC processor, a pass and just say, well, they they were they were kind of rookies. <laughs> well, uh, so um, other than the fact that we can look forward to uh, continued continued uh, future Curiosity rover coverage on this show, uh, any other thoughts on it? No, I'm, I just pretty much that that I'm looking forward to as the high-res images come in over the next few weeks. And then as the months and you know hopefully years come down the road, we see more and more of this you know, instrumentation and scientific know data come out of this so that we can see mm-hmm. exact get a better idea of what exactly is there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gosh it's gonna be it's gonna be good stuff for the show it's the best part it's great for everybody but it's great for sci-bite um yes. now uh actually speaking about things that are not just great for sci-bite but you know really things that are good for everybody that's right i'm talking about you everybody not only do we have uh dr uh, robert uh what's his last name zubrin Zubrin. zubrin's book we have that in the show notes which if you grab that you'll be supporting the show but i just want to give people an update we also have uh now we have official affiliate plugins for your browser in the chrome and firefox uh, extension stores and uh the nice thing about that it means that they won't get disabled if your browser does updates so uh, we have links to those at the bottom of jupiterbroadcasting.com. You know, you just go over to our website and you'll find them at the very, very bottom of the website. And uh, if you install those, when you visit sites that support our uh, affiliate, then uh, you, your shopping session will be tagged for Jupiter Broadcasting and a portion of your shopping 
cart will go to Jupiter Broadcasting. It's usually pretty small, but in aggregate, it ends up being a great way for the community to directly support Jupiter Broadcasting. So that way we can keep all of the advertising down to a minimum, and you guys are the ones who are the producers. We only have to answer to you. It's a great system, and you can get uh, yourself something, and you get us a little something when you're doing that. So thank you to everybody who grabs those. The old extensions are still working. However, we're pushing updates out to the ones that are in the stores. So if you have our old extension, you might want to remove it and go get this one because we just added um, a new affiliate this last week and they were just published in both stores. So And then Ooh. that'll be where we do all the future stuff. So as long as you have the ones that are from the official Chrome store and the official Firefox store, you'll automatically get the updates as we push them out. And thank you everyone again for supporting the network. You guys make this possible. All right, Heather. Well, with that all done, why don't you come, come step over here and let's uh, let's jump into the uh, the old Wayback Machine. Are you oh, ready? Yeah. Okay, all right. Here we all go. Right. Close the door. Come on. Okay. Ooh, ooh. Ah, I gotta remember to quit wearing that big hat when I come in here. All you know, right. It takes uh, up all the space. I'm sorry about that. The uh, first uh, and our only destination this week for this week in science history takes us to 166 years ago, August 8, 18. 46. The Smithsonian Institution. Oh. Act of Congress, uh, signed by President uh, James K. Polk, established the Smithsonian as a trust. Um, actually, it was kind of strange. Uh, a British scientist, James Smith, Smith, Smithson, actually you know, drew up his will, and he had about $500,000, and he had all these different... Um, Different ben- uh, different things. Benefactors? So no? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Something like that. Yeah. He had this collection <laughs> of biological things and oh, okay. uh, $500,000. And he drew up his last will and he said, I give everything to my nephew. Oh, wow. And if he dies without any heirs, then the whole thing goes to the U.S. Did, and he, did he die without any heirs? Yeah. He died oh, without any heirs. sad. He, the... The original guy he never visited the U.S. Nobody really knows why or what his motives were behind it. He never been here, as far as anyone can tell. He never corresponded with anyone that on this side of the ocean. Weird. Are you telling me this here is a this here is a Smithsonian conspiracy? This sounds this sounds awful suspicious, Heather. <laughs> it got us the Smithsonian. Well, then I'm okay. All right. So, yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, all these various. You know, the whole idea of going to the Smithsonian Air and Space and being able to look at, you know, the, the ability to look at, you know, things like Apollo 11 capsule or, you know, mm-hmm. other stuff. Because I'm sure there's other science things around. Probably. in space, probably. Maybe. Um, I don't know, possibly. So, these type of things are, are there and all came from this, you know, last will and testament. That That's fascinating. And, and it really originated with somebody's private collection. Yeah, it started, you know, with that and you know, some money and it ended up going through the hands and ending up in the, the huh. arms of the U S and actually there was a little bit of uh, go back and forth for that too. Cause it's the Congress and everyone was not quite concerned. They're like, um, are we really allowed to be a beneficiary to something like this? Right. Um, you know, trying to argue back and forth. And then it was finally decided that it would be set up um, like Smithsonian is so that people can, it's a, repository of stuff right 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 it's all kinds of different stuff in there now and maybe what this really is is foreshadowing the future history of my star trek starship collection 
Maybe it's my personal collection that I'll betroth to my son. And then when he dies, lonely, without any children or, or any offspring, it'll then become a mu- starter for a museum. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see. You know what? All, you know, Trek, all sci-fi people shall come together and make their own institute and be like, we sign over all our cool models and toys to this <laughs> repository. Right. You see, it's just it's it's the spark. You know, why don't uh, why don't I just go ahead and recalibrate the sidebite computer so that way we can look up into the sky this week. All right. Uh, about midweek this week, about an hour after sunset, uh, look to um, there's a bright triangle. There's the top point will be Saturn. The spica will be to its lower left. And Mars will be to its lower right. That's a party. Yeah. A gorgeous triangle over there. Uh, As we get into Friday, uh, we'll actually see uh, in the early morning, uh, Jupiter will be to the lower left of the moon. Hmm. And as we get into Saturday, just after midnight, we're actually going to be hitting the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. It is one of the the better known uh, meteor showers. This one, it, it... averages about one a minute. Oh. Now the the moon isn't going to be that big, so it you know it'll rise uh, one or two a.m. But it won't really overshadow the the meteor shower all that much. Oh. Now astronomers are loath to predict what a meteor shower will do in any one given year. You know because it is essentially Earth traveling through a trail of debris. So it's not completely uniform. You know, it's, there's going to be clumps, like a trail of cookies behind a kid. So there's going to be some little, you know, far bits, and then it's going to be like a big clump of cookie. And most of the time, you don't know until you step in it. Yes. So that's kind of where this is. So they don't want to say, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a great year, because then if it duds, which <laughs> has happened in the past. And they're like, um. Right. Like, sorry, we got everybody excited. Uh, yeah. So maybe next I mean, year. On the grand average of years, it's about one a minute. But so Saturday, Sunday, um, this weekend, if you happen to see a couple of, uh, you know, meteors, and it's most likely part of the Perseid, Perseid meteor shower. Very cool. I'll keep an yes. eye out. All right, Heather, I think that's the whole show. I think that's the show. Well, what a great week now. Of course, everyone, uh, you can tune in live on Tuesday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Pacific over jblive.tv or jblive.info if you want the audio streams. Also, send us in your thoughts. Email us, scibyte at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use the contact us form at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting site. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning to this week's episode of Scibyte, and be sure you tune in right back here next week.